you have a Bible, you can take it and turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, and this will serve as sort of an introductory sermon to this series. Um, Kelsey asked me before I was, when she got here to help with the music, she said, how do you feel about your sermon? She said, I've never asked you that before. And it was a good question because I said, well, I'm excited about getting into the series, but I feel like we're just sort of introducing things. I wish there was more concrete application um, but we're going to trust that this is a series and you can't do everything in one sermon. So we're going to lay some foundation um, and hopefully build on that and you'll, we'll, we'll grow over the weeks to see how practical and revolutionary the words of Christ are in this chapter. But um, know that we're building a foundation uh, this afternoon. So Matthew 5, and we'll be thinking on this as a whole um, this afternoon. As I said, it's the season for vacations, uh, and uh, most good vacations have some sort of mix of seeing something new or beautiful or exciting, but also finding time to rest and relax. So you want to see something new and, and great, something that you love, but you also want to be able to relax. There's excitement alongside rest, most often with people that, that you love. If, if you're on a good vacation, then at some point you're going to sit down somewhere, I imagine, and kind of let out a deep sigh and say, this is the life. I don't know if you've ever said that, but you know, oh man, if I could live like this every day, wouldn't that be great? Uh, that's a feeling we want to have all of our days. We want to live the life every day of our life. But the question is, what, what is the good life? What makes up a life of happiness and wholeness and flourishing? And beyond simply a life of, uh, of seeing exciting things or of resting well, how do we know when we have succeeded? And how can we find contentment and joy no matter what the circumstances around us are? What does a life of peace and satisfaction and fruitfulness look like? Consciously or subconsciously, I think that's that that pursuit of happiness and wholeness and flourishing in, in life is something that we're all striving after throughout our days. If you want to know what people think is the good life, then you can look at their social media account because that's what they're posting. This is when life is good. That's what I'm going to, to show you for the most part. And in everyday life, um, we both avoid pain and we embrace pain with the goal of present or future joy. What we decide to do or not do is traced back to this question of what will make me happy or successful or satisfied. On Thursday evening, after a long day, Andrew and I looked at a pile of dishes on the counter. And a part of me said the good life right now would be to ignore them and sit on the couch. That's the good life. And some nights, that is the good life. But another part of me said that life would be better if we washed the dishes so that when we woke up in the morning, they wouldn't be staring at us. And so we had to decide what's best, what's going to lead to happiness, what's going to lead to fruitfulness. And so even that decision there, a simple mundane decision of life, is about what's going to make me happy, what's going to make me satisfied, what's going to bring joy into my life. And so from specific moments like that to even sort of the greater questions of life, 
about meaning. We are, we're searching for this good life. And in this search for happiness and wholeness and a life of, of flourishing, that's not a wrong search. In fact, I think that this is much of what scripture is speaking to and telling us. God's word is announcing to us what the true good life is and how God can give it to us. God is our creator. And so God therefore knows what our greatest good is. And in his grace and in his kindness, he doesn't keep that as a secret. Rather, what leads to flourishing and and wholeness and joy is written all across the pages of, of scripture. And within this thread of teaching about what brings joy and happiness and wholeness and peace and satisfaction within that, the nine statements of Matthew 5, 1 through 12 shine forth as some of, if not the brightest jewels of knowledge about what the good life is. Matthew 5 through 7 contain the words of what is most often called the Sermon on the Mount, which is said to be the most commented on section of the New Testament, meaning that there's more written about these three chapters of the Bible than any other single passage of the New Testament. And probably the most famous part of this sermon is found at the very beginning, um, namely this, this discourse of nine statements describing the blessed person, which means that Jesus opens his comments on the most famous sermon that we have about the kingdom of God. He opens that by describing for his disciples throughout the ages, which would include us, describing for us what the blessed and the flourishing and the happy person looks like and why they are that way. As I thought about that, I thought, now, if that's what Jesus is describing, if he's describing what wholeness and happiness and flourishing looks like, and if that's what my heart deep down is looking for and longing for, and if, and if this is really the center of the Bible's teaching on this matter, then I should work really hard to try to understand what these things mean and how I can get it deep down in my soul so that it overflows into my daily life. If I want to be satisfied and Jesus is talking about satisfaction and in fact talking in one of the most poignant ways about satisfaction, then I should take some time to try to figure out what he's saying. And I even thought too, if, if you're skeptical about how revolutionary this teaching of Jesus really is, I still think you would be foolish to not invest yourself in trying to understand what these words of Jesus mean. They've endured through the centuries. Uh, even if people don't accept Jesus as Savior and Lord, they accept him as a pretty wise teacher. And, and this is one of the core things that he says. And so I think as I thought about this passage, uh, some of me said, well, maybe we shouldn't do each beatitude individually. Maybe we should take them as a whole or think about them as a, in the context. But then I thought, no, this is worth taking some time to really meditate and think on and try to understand what it means in our lives. And so I want to invite you into that kind of a deep meditative study. But I also want to warn you that that's not going to be easy. It's going to take time and energy and, and effort to really understand what these things mean. We're going to need to meditate on and mull over and chew on these truths. And there's no better, better way to do that than to memorize them. Memorization, um, the, the purpose of memorization is meditation. You don't memorize scripture so that you can tell everyone, hey, look what I memorized. 
You memorize scripture so that when you don't have your Bible in front of you, you can still be thinking on and mulling over and concentrating and learning about what scripture has to say. And so as we begin this new series, that's the first goal. I want us to memorize Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12. And that's attainable for everyone. Kids, you can do this. You can memorize these verses, probably better than your parents may even be able to, because your minds are a little bit sharper than ours in different ways. So we can do this. There's, there's repetition. There's parallelism. These these statements are ripe for memorizing. I think Jesus said them this way so that we would memorize them. And so to that end, each Sunday over the coming weeks, I will not just read Matthew 5, 1 through 12, but we will all read it together. Um, and so we're going to do that now. I've got it right up here, so we're all reading the same version. This is from the ESV. But each Sunday over the, the coming weeks, we're going to read this aloud. So Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12, let's all read this together. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. As we start this new series, my, my hope this afternoon is to introduce this section of scripture and to think about the wider context of the Beatitudes. And so I just want to ask three questions to sort of shape our thoughts. And the first question is, what is a Beatitude? Uh, what is a Beatitude? B-E-A-T-I-T-U-D-E. I always want to spell it with A-T-T for some reason, so I thought I'd spell it for you. But what is a beatitude? The word beatitude is rooted in a transliteration of the Latin word for the word that we have translated here in our text most often as blessed. So that means it's a it's a Latin word that's sort of been transformed into an English word. And honestly, it's not a very helpful word to us other than it sort of serves as this handy word to refer to the nine statements of Jesus. That's pretty much all it's used for. I, I, I don't think besides talking about these statements that there was any point during this week in your vocabulary that you use the word beatitude. Um, but the word beat, if, if the word beatitude is, is unhelpful, then we should also say that the word blessed is confusing. The word there, blessed, at the beginning of each of these statements is confusing, which is not good because blessed is obviously the most important word in this passage. And if we don't understand what is meant by the, the Greek word that's translated into blessed in most English versions, then we are at a high risk of misunderstanding and misapplying uh, these words of Christ. So 
here's why blessed, blessed or blessed would lead us maybe down the wrong path to understanding these verses. So when you hear the word bless or blessing or blessed, we rightly think about God as the source of all good things in life and that he has blessed us in many ways. We have many blessings from God. And the scriptures use the word bless in this way. So we think about the benediction in Numbers 6, uh, which begins with those words, the Lord bless you and keep you. It's a pronouncement of the favor of God on human beings. We could also think about the lists of blessings and cursings at the end of Deuteronomy. And we find that uh, alongside blessing is cursing. And so the opposite of blessing from God is cursing from God. The issue though here is that our English Bibles use the word bless to translate two different Hebrew words and two different Greek words that are, that are parallel to each other. And so the word in Matthew 5 is not parallel to the word in Numbers 6 that's translated bless or, or elsewhere. Um, and that, that, and, and it doesn't most clearly communicate this idea of favor from God. Rather, Matthew 5 is parallel to a different Hebrew word, and it's the word that's used in Psalm 1-1 that we read at, at, for the call to worship, which says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Or Psalm 119, 1 through 2, it says, Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart. Proverbs uses this word, and that helps us to connect the word blessed to wisdom literature. Proverbs 3.13 says, Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. And then Lady Wisdom in Proverbs 8, 32 through 34 says, And now, O sons, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Hear instruction and be wise and do not neglect it. Blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors. And so as we think about this this word, that's translated blessed, it's it's very at home in wisdom literature is what we're finding. And it's used not to speak about how to be blessed by God, how to receive sort of God's divine favor, but rather it describes what a blessed and flourishing life looks like. The, the Beatitudes then, they emerge not as a, a list of things that we need to do to receive divine favor, but rather they're this description of a way of being in the world that leads to flourishing and happiness. They show us what members of God's kingdom look like, and they affirm that these are the kind of people that are blessed and flourishing and happy in God's kingdom. I just want to say at the very beginning that this book here has been most helpful to me in studying, and so I just want to give credit where credit is due that most of my thoughts are not very original. Uh, this is the Sermon on the Mount and Human Flourishing by Jonathan Pennington. He's a, a professor over at, at Southern Seminary um, and very helpful. And in his discussion on the nuances of the meaning between these two words, Dr. Pennington says that the more we look at them, the more it becomes clear that, and this is him, something other than a pronouncement of divine blessing is at hand. Rather, Continuing in the wisdom tradition, Jesus begins his public ministry by painting a picture of what the state of true God-centered human flourishing looks like. He is making an appeal 
and casting an inspiring vision, even as Psalms, Proverbs, and Isaiah do, for what true well-being looks like in God's coming kingdom. Jesus describes in a surprising way what the good life looks like, what a life of happiness and flourishing is. In fact, that's how Dr. Pennington translates this word blessed. He uses the word flourishing. So flourishing are the poor in spirit. There's, the problem with that word is there's really no great English equivalent, which is always the problem when we're translating. Sometimes we have a clearer parallel, but with this word, there's, there's nothing that's really perfectly parallel. And flourishing is helpful, if only to sort of break us out of our habitual way of understanding these statements. But we just want to think about a whole maybe mess of words to try to understand what's being communicated. So that might help us to answer this question. Our first question, what is a beatitude? I'll give you a definition that maybe I'll change in coming weeks, okay? But in the context of this, let's say this, a beatitude is this. It's a surprising description of the flourishing life we are to live as members of God's kingdom. A beatitude is a surprising description of the flourishing life we are to live as members of God's kingdom. So when we take them all together, these statements help us to see how we can thrive and flourish in God's kingdom. It reminds me of those pictures that are made up of a lot of smaller pictures. Have you seen these? The smaller pictures placed in the right spots form this mosaic that give us a larger picture. This is an example, okay? This is obviously the earth. Um, but it, it's not a picture of the earth. It's a picture of a bunch of other pictures, right? And actually, it's 583 microorganisms. <laughs> so very tiny things on earth. And if you zoom in, you can see that that's what's making up this larger picture of the earth, all these microorganisms. And as I, I thought about that picture, to me, what it what it says is that In a similar way, these nine statements taken together reveal to us a portrait of the person who flourishes in God's new kingdom. And as we move through them each week, we're going to inevitably find out actually that the picture is of Jesus. That Jesus is the one who lived out these statements most fully. But we also are being invited to cultivate these characteristics and and priorities in our lives as members of God's kingdom and as those who long to to follow Jesus, as those that want to look more and more like him. And if we long to have the image of of Christ formed in us, then we're actually longing to live according to these statements that he's given us. Hopefully we're getting a, a grip on these beatitudes. They're a little slippery, but hopefully we're getting an understanding of what this means and what they're trying to communicate And so I want us to think next about the context of these Beatitudes. So the second question is just, what is the context? What's what's the context? What's surrounding these ideas? As most of you know, we don't normally jump into the middle of a book of the Bible. In other words, we recognize that Matthew 5, 1 through 12 has to be understood within the context of the entire book of Matthew. And in fact, uh, more than ever, as I've read over these nine statements, I've, I've realized that they're embedded not just in the book of Matthew, but in the context of the, the whole of Scripture. As you think about a passage of Scripture, you can think about it like the complexity of a person. 
I might know you and understand you to a certain extent based on a particular moment or even a certain phase in your life where I meet you. But if you want to know someone deeply, you have to understand. Uh, and if you want to understand their, their motivations and their idiosyncrasies and their passions, then you have to know their history. You know the context of what they have lived. You need to know their story, where they were born, what was their upbringing like, what has been the most important and impactful moments in their journey. And the more you see the context of their life, the more you really understand them. And we need to do that with scriptures. There's a, a depth of context to these Beatitudes. I told Andrea, I think it was probably on Wednesday, I said, I feel like to understand the Beatitudes, I need to understand the whole Bible. And then I can understand the Beatitudes. <laughs> and in some ways, that's true. I think each of these statements is like a never-ending onion with layer after layer that we can slowly pull back. And in order to get at those layers, we need to understand more and more of the context, the theological, the cultural, the biblical context that these statements are, are found in. And so um, I imagine that we're going to continue to 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 peel back these different contexts, but I want to try to delve into just uh, three this afternoon as we begin the journey. So the first context is the context of the Old Testament. The context of the Old Testament, what's come before? We've mentioned the ideas of blessing and blessed and the difference between them in the Old Testament, and hopefully we can uh, continually become more and more clear on what that, that means. I would invite you to study Psalm 1 and also Psalm 2. The last verse of Psalm 2 has another blessed statement and, and those might help you get at this idea of what blessedness and flourishing is. Also, the, the second half of Isaiah is said to be key to understanding the Sermon on the Mount. And Isaiah 61, which Mark read for us so beautifully, Isaiah 61 in particular is considered to be vital to the background of the Beatitudes. We saw there this beautiful picture of God's coming kingdom that Jesus even announced. The kingdom is here now that I'm here. And, and knowing that Isaiah 61 in the background helps us to see that Jesus is describing how we might flourish as members of God's kingdom. And he's also opening our minds to the, to the future hope of the kingdom that he is inaugurating at his coming, but that will, we will be fully realized when he comes again and establishes his kingdom fully and finally. So Jesus is looking back at portions of, of the Old Testament that were actually looking forward to the fullness of the kingdom and the Beatitudes describe for us what is true in part about God's kingdom here on earth and what it will be like when Christ comes again. But of course the past is also in view. Matthew is forming a bridge. It's the first book of the, of the New Testament and it's forming a bridge from the past events and promises of the Old Testament to the arrival of Jesus. If you know a little bit about the book of Matthew, you know that it begins with a genealogy. A genealogy in chapter 1 that connects Jesus to the promises given to Abraham and to David. And it also draws strong connections between Jesus and Moses. Re regarding Moses, it's, it's pretty astounding. Um, we find that both Moses and Jesus were, were called out of Egypt. They were both baptized in one way or another at the beginning of the, their ministries. Moses we would probably say in the Red Sea, though you maybe could argue for him being baptized in the Nile. I don't know. Um, but Jesus there in the Jordan River. Moses was in the wilderness for 40 years and Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days. And then in Matthew 5, 1 through 2, the Sermon on the Mount opens. And what's it say? 
Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying. So probably a a very clear allusion to Moses going up on Mount Sinai to receive the law. And Jesus here comes as the greater Moses and tells us about the kingdom of God and tells us about the depth of the meaning of the law. Jesus emerges, as we sang about, as a prophet, a priest, and a king who looked much like those that had been in Israel's past, but who also was bringing a newness to God's message. So now we're kind of moving out of the context of just the Old Testament into the context of Matthew. That's the second context, biblically, that we need to think about, the context of Matthew. We could, I won't say as much about this as as could be said, but we should note that that the Sermon on the Mount is one of of five different discourses in Matthew's gospel. Um, So if you were to read through the gospel of Matthew, one way that if you're trying to read through that and get a handle on this bigger book, look for the five different teaching blocks that occur in this book. Actually, which some people say may be parallel to Moses, the five books of the Torah, of the Pentateuch that Moses had written, and Jesus is giving these five key discourses. But Matthew shapes his narrative around these large chunks of teaching and then the events that that follow them. And each one of these end with a phrase like this, when Jesus finished these sayings. So you know when that section's done because Matthew writes, when Jesus finished these sayings. But then in Matthew 26, 1, he closes that final section by saying, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, he has a new word, just that little word, all, and indicates that these are all connected. And so to understand the Sermon on the Mount, we have to understand it in the context of all these four other discourses. One of the key ones is found in, in chapter 23, and it has all these woes against the Pharisees. You remember when Jesus does that, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. And if there's a word that's opposite, so bl- the opposite of bless is curse, the opposite of this idea of blessedness and flourishing is the word woe. And so we have to look, Matthew is almost bookending this in his gospel of begins with the, that Jesus begins by pronouncing these blessed statements and he ends with these woes. And so we have to understand how these things are, are parallel. And then within the context of the entire book of Matthew, we find the context of the Sermon on the Mount itself. This, this sermon, it's, it's a sermon that's focused on how to live in God's kingdom, on the nature of true righteousness. It speaks about the deeper meaning of the law and how Jesus had come to fulfill it. To fulfill it. And so as we study these ideas, we have to ask, how do, the be, how do the Beatitudes fit in as the introduction to this entire sermon? Why does Jesus start this way? Now, start thinking about all these contexts. Understanding the Beatitudes starts to feel like an impossible task. How am I supposed to figure out what this all means? I got to understand the whole book of Matthew. Well, then I got to understand the whole Bible, the Old Testament. I didn't understand a word that Mark was talking about in Isaiah 61. How am I supposed to figure this out? Which is how I felt this past week. So, <laughs> But I don't want you to be discouraged. And so let me encourage you and myself as well that first of all, God's word is clear. The clarity of scripture. If you want a good... 25 cent word, the perspicuity of scripture is what it's often called. The clarity of scripture allows us by the power of the spirit to understand what it says. 
Hear this encouragement from Deuteronomy 30, verses 11 through 14. Moses tells the people, he says, This commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, Who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. We can understand it and we can walk in the ways that Christ has called us to. In that vein, the Westminster Confession of Faith states, all things in scripture are not alike plain in themselves, so they're not all clear, are not alike clear unto all. Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of scripture or other that not only the the learned but the unlearned, maybe that's us, in a due use of the ordinary means may attain unto a sufficient understanding of them. Which means we can get this. We can understand it. Scripture is clear. By God's grace, through his spirit, we can understand these deep statements and we can grow in the ways that God intends us to. But let me secondly encourage you by saying that the the process of understanding and applying the scriptures, especially these, is lifelong. These are not statements that we should expect to read once or, or study once and fully understand and apply them any more than you might think you can instantly learn how to play the piano or that the first time you cook, you're going to be a great chef. Most worthwhile things in life take some time and some energy and some effort, right? And so walking in the ways of Matthew 5, 1 through 12 is a process that's going to take a lifetime. And even within that, we're not going to fully succeed to do it. Which sort of leads to my last question, which is what is the goal? What's the goal of these statements? Having thought about that word blessed or or flourish, or, or what that word is blessed or flourishing is communicating, And seeing the ties to wisdom literature, I'm led to believe that Jesus in these things is concerned with character formation. He wants us to be a certain way. In other words, the the Beatitudes are not a list of what we need to do to be happy and flourishing. They are a description of the kind of people who are happy and flourishing. Scripture as a whole is not so much telling us what to do, but it's telling us what kind of people to be. And this discourse, in this discourse on the kingdom of God, Jesus is delivering to us a new way of living and a new way of being in the world. That could sound like splitting hairs, because of course there's things that we have to do, right, as, people, as members of God's kingdom. And anything good that we have is, is because God has, has blessed us. So why am I making this distinction? But I think it's important to sort of split this hair so that we can come to grips with the fact that we could do all the right things, whatever we think they are. We could do that list and we could still not be kingdom-minded people. We could focus so much on a list of tasks that we fail to be people who have been truly transformed by the message of Jesus, to be people that are really uniquely kingdom people. I'm prone to read the Bible and ask, what should I do? 
What do I need to do now? And, and certainly there are things that we need to do in response to God's words. I'm not saying that that's never the right question. But I think before that question, we should ask, who am I supposed to be? How is God's word trying to form my character? How, how is this scripture making me more into the likeness of Jesus at the core of who I am? Changing the way I think and process in life. I think we then maybe stop asking things like, what do I need to do to be a good husband? Or what do I need to be to do to be a, a God-honoring wife? What do I need to do to be a good son or daughter, a good employee, a good church member? We're going to get there eventually, but I think we get there by asking, what is the, what is the character of a member of God's kingdom? And how can I work that into my life so that I, I value that what I value and, and what I long for changes the way that I relate to people around me. It changes the way that I relate to my spouse or to my parents or to my employer. I, I think about that, you know, a relationship like a husband and wife, that often that's what we're looking for. Well, what does she want me to do? What does God want me to do to be a good husband? And instead, maybe we start thinking, who am I supposed to be within this marriage? And how will that help me to, to be an encouragement to my, to my wife and all the other relationships that we have? And I think in focusing on who we are to be and not what we're supposed to do, the Beatitudes then start to preach the gospel to us. Because the gospel comes to we who want a list of things for God to do, for God to accept us. And it tells us it's not what you do. It's who you are, and it's ultimately who you are through faith in Christ that makes you a member of God's kingdom. The gospel is that we could never do what, we, what needed to be done to be forgiven and welcomed as God's children, but rather Jesus, through his death and resurrection, has done it. And through faith in Christ, we're transformed into new people with new hearts that are able to walk in the newness of life by the power of the Spirit. I hope this is something we can continue to, to think about. And you help me clarify the difference, maybe, between doing and, and being. I'll say it's changed how I've read the Scriptures, that I've tried to think, how do I develop character rather than create a list of things that I need to do? And I think that that's where this joy and happiness that we're looking for comes from. Our hearts are longing for happiness. We're longing for fulfillment. We, we want to live lives of significance and purpose. We want to, to flourish in life. And, and by God's grace, through his spirit, we can walk in the ways of the kingdom that are described in these verses. And if we do that, then we will know what the good life is. We will know the fullness of God's kingdom. Not completely, not fully, because this kingdom is, is still to come. And as I think about that, I think there will be this final day when we all get to the kingdom and we sit down and we all sigh and say, this is the good life. We'll finally know what it means, but we can taste it now. We can know what it what it, what at its core it is when we start to understand these beatitudes. So I want to invite you into a moment of silence.
And maybe a, a moment as we begin this series, just to ask that God would help you to understand these, to be diligent in studying them even throughout the week and memorizing the Beatitudes. Um, but maybe too that God would build character, the character of the kingdom in you, that it wouldn't be a focus on what I need to do, but on who I need to grow to be.